food touches us all and food distribution is not equal. And greenhouses can help with that. And there are many, many nonprofits these days that help build greenhouses in inner cities or in areas where people need the food and can grow it themselves. They live on a farm. It's a very strange world we live in where people who are even growing food don't have access because they're selling their corn or whatever crops they're growing to, they have contracts or it's not even being made into food. So they're not eating that food. And then their soil is so depleted, they can't even really manage a garden nor do they have the time. And then there's no grocery stores nearby. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Iyer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands which are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Mark Blinke, founder of Ceres Greenhouse Solutions, designing for a better future. Joining us, along with Mark, is Miriam Schaefer, marketing and communications specialist. Welcome, Mark and Miriam. Thank you, Vidya. Thank you. Such a pleasure. I'm looking so forward to speaking with you. So I grew up in Mumbai, India, and Mumbai is a big city comparable to New York City. The maximum farming or gardening that I did or was exposed to was some basic herbs that I grew in a window plant or a window pot. Explain to me where our food comes from. Yeah, happy to do that. So, you know, we let's leave Mumbai out for a minute because I don't know the numbers on that, even though my wife is from Hyderabad, not so far from you. <laughs> really? And we go to Mumbai a lot, so I know a lot about Mumbai, but not about the farming part. I This average food in the U.S. comes from about 1,500 miles away. And so uh, that, of course, depends. If you're living in California and Florida, that may be a little closer in average, but it still comes from far away. And I think I got into this business. Really, this is my third career, and I, I have been a lot of fun as a chemical engineer. And I owned a company before this one. It was a chemical engineering company. And then before that, I worked for W.L. Gore and Volmade. We'll talk a little bit about that. But I had this dream of living in a net zero energy house. That was my, my dream. And I thought, oh, only the very rich people can afford that. And then we moved to Boulder and we bought a house and I looked at that and I was like, we can change this. I can do this. And so we built a net zero energy house. So we remodeled it to do that. Actually, it's not net zero, it's net positive. And several of these people that, that evaluate these things think that at the time that we were done, probably one of the 10 most energy efficient houses in the U.S., out of a remodel of a 1961 house. When was this? That was in 2007. And so one of the people that I worked with coming up with quadruple pane windows is like, you know, Mark, so what, you know, you have a Netzor house and you have a plug-in car. Where does your food come from? And the answer I gave, which was tongue in cheek, is like from the grocery store, which I knew that is not correct. And he said, well, obviously the average food distance in the in most of the US is these 1500 miles. It means it comes from all over and especially to Colorado where you have a very short growing season. That's a major concern. And he asked, well, have you ever thought about greenhouses? And so I thought, yeah, 
technically, yes. And I think they're all really still built the same way they were built 100 years ago. And none of the principles that we just used in this house to make it so energy efficient are actually used. And we could actually use them. He said, and guess what? We have a grant from the USDA. Why don't we build one together? And so, you know. So who was this person? So why was he questioning you? His name is Dr. Larry Kinney. He is a lifetime researcher. At the time he brought this up to me, he was about 70 years old. And he has been a very prominent energy efficiency expert in the U.S. writing memos that President Carter read and others about um, creating a more sustainable future. And he was impressed with what I did and said, hey, you know, you want to help me and build this greenhouse? And ah, by the way, you want to become CEO of my company? And so I said, sure, we can try this. Um, I had nothing else to do, just sold my last company and said, well, let's do something completely out of my comfort zone. And um, so we started working on that. And um, we got some really good ideas. And we built a greenhouse with the USDA grant that was really the most energy efficient greenhouse that I ever have seen. Um, It wasn't necessarily the most commercially viable one, but it gave us all the information that we needed to then start thinking about first backyard kids, which was the first idea, you know, have built greenhouses in people's backyards so that they can grow all year long with minimal energy use. And then after a while, and we got better and better at that, we thought, okay, now let's build commercial structures. And then we got into the commercial side. When you talk about greenhouses, I'm thinking of something which can control the environment, right? Yes. The greenhouses or this industry as, as a whole is called controlled environmental agriculture. And so we, we're trying to basically allow those plants to grow under optimum conditions all year long. We are thinking about, say, growing tomatoes in winter in Colorado in a greenhouse. But even in, say, Florida or some other places where they have pretty temperate weather all year round, There are crops which are destroyed due to unseasonable weather conditions, like, say, an early frost or a flood in Alabama, Louisiana. How much of the crops are destroyed in our country because of that? I do not know the number of crops that that get destroyed by the circumstances, the weather, etc. I do know, or at least believe to know, that we can grow about... 10 times more food in a controlled environment than we can grow outdoors just because of the duration. Of course, that's not the same. That ratio is not necessarily the same in Minnesota than it is in Florida. But in Florida, you have other issues like hurricanes that can destroy crops on a large scale. And so the beautiful thing is about greenhouses is that you can actually build greenhouses strong enough to withstand hurricanes. And so you allow to take out the big risks that farmers otherwise have, right? You always hear of farmers running into one disaster after the other and the whole crop for the year is gone. Well, if you have a greenhouse, that really doesn't happen. How does a greenhouse control it? I've seen structures which are glass, on all sides to let the light in and maybe an irrigation system. 
yeah, this is, I think, the part where we made the first changes to how these greenhouses were built. In the normal greenhouses, really, what you're seeing is you have a plant, imagine the plant standing somewhere in the open, and you build a greenhouse, which is usually an elongated structure. And that is usually oriented from north to south. In the morning, you have the sun coming in from the east. In the daytime, it comes in through the roof from the south. And in the afternoon, it comes in from the west, just like it would do when the plant would be just standing there. And the beautiful thing about that is you have basically the same amount of light that the plant would have otherwise, but you have to reduce the amount of light that the absorption of the glazing material, if it is glass, it takes about 10% per layer, it could be some plastic, whatever. Those glazing materials take a little bit of the light away and the steel structure that you use or the wood structure will take light away. So in reality, that plant will probably get somewhere in the range of 75% of the light that it would otherwise get, which is not a problem at all in the summer when you have lots of light and you have plenty of light, that's not a problem. In the winter, though, you have a problem because that greenhouse cannot really be insulated because it would take away the light significantly either on the morning or in the afternoon. So you can't really insulate that structure. And so you have a very highly often leaking structure, but more importantly, the the R value, the insulation value of the glazing material is rather poor. And so that greenhouse will have to be heated significantly at nighttime. And in the daytime, even in the middle of the winter, because the sun is so intense, it will overheat. So you actually need to take the heat and bring it outside of the structure. And so this is kind of somewhat, I'm going to say perverse, right? In the, sum, in the daytime, you have too much heat. In the nighttime, you don't have enough heat. So what would be the natural thing to do is like, okay, I want to collect the sun that I, and the energy that I get during the daytime, store it inside the greenhouse for nighttime use. And that's a part of what we do. That's the trick, the engineering of all of this is how do I store that heat? And there are two wonderful ways to do that. One of them is by storing it in the soil itself, right? Find a way to put the heat in the soil or find a way to put it into water. Both of those are wonderful ways to store the energy. And so that's a great way to use the energy you're getting at night. But so the alternative to building greenhouses this way was, you know, as I explained to you, we have this um, net zero energy house that we built and it's all about collecting the sun at the right time and actually use it as a solar collector. So what we do, we turn the greenhouse 90 degrees, build it from east to west, and have the glazing only go to the south. That means the sun from the south will bring all the heat into the greenhouse, and none of that sun actually will go out. On the north side, we put a solid wall that is highly insulated. Interesting. So now half your greenhouse is insulated, the half is open. And in the section that is open, the beautiful thing is that any light that comes in is basically getting intensified. So your greenhouse is glass three sides, primarily. 
between one and three sides. So it's either, if you're going very further to the north, it becomes only one side, south, because we want to insulate as much as possible. So if you're talking Alaska or somewhere of the First Nations in Canada or Native Americans in the U.S., in the northern territories, you want to really insulate very well because your temperature can be minus 30, minus 40 degrees on a regular basis. You want just enough light to come from the south. I just wanted to clarify that um, you, you said glass, and we actually don't use glass in the greenhouses. We refer to as, instead of glasses, just glazing, and there's different materials we use for that, um, but glass isn't one of them. So we use polycarbonate, sometimes acrylic, or um, another product called ETFE, and I'm sure Mark can speak to both to all of those in more detail, um, but there, it was a very conscious choice i'd say to not use glass so and why not glass miriam do you want to answer or should i answer i think that you probably have a better answer than me so i'll let you take it more so in our greenhouses we tend not to use glass and glass has a few disadvantages number one glass comes only in small relatively small sizes four foot wide maybe eight feet tall that means you have to put a lot of metal frames around the actual glass to make it not to fit it into the greenhouse. Once you do that, all these metal frames are relatively poorly insulated. There's, in other words, you can get heat loss through those metal studs or these metal supports. That is a problem that you can fix using very expensive insulators in between these metal panels, but it takes a lot of work and cost to make a glass house very energy efficient. And the second thing is that a single layer glass has a very poor insulation. You want at least a double layer glass and then the actual structure becomes enormously heavy and the steel needs to be heavy. And so you need to spend a lot of resources to create the steel to actually allow for the glass to be used. And that's just not worth it. And glass can break. Yep. So you need uh, tempered glass, which is an additional, so it gets yes. more, more cost prohibitive. So coming back to where the the sides which are insulated, you primarily are insulating north because if you look at our homes, the northern windows are the ones which wear out the first. Northern windows are the ones where the air leaks the first. Is that the same logic behind you insulating the northern sides more? Yeah, exactly. You should should be working as an engineer. I, I see it. You're, <laughs> why are you getting an MBA? You don't need to get an MBA. You just, you know, you're all there for the engineering. Yes. So the idea is there's very little light coming in from the north. So we want to make sure that we don't have any heat going out. And the other thing that we haven't really touched on is that northern side is highly reflective. So before, what I told you is that in a normal greenhouse, the amount of sun that the plant sees that you're still having, you know, somewhere sitting in your soil is about 75% of the light outside. Well, depending on the latitude and because of the way we build our greenhouses as solar collectors, you can actually increase that light compared to the outside by 150%. So you're actually getting more light than you would get otherwise. And that's because of that north wall that reflects the light back into the plant area. So you have on your team several engineers, architects, 
builders. Why was it so important to have that team? Was that for the innovation that you had or was it you had an idea of how the greenhouse should work and you had this team to build it or was it a combination? The team that, you know, I started this together with my business partner, Lindsay Schiller, 13 years ago. At that point, you know, Larry wanted to do more research he did really not want to have a business. He wanted to go to big international conferences and give presentations about the latest and greatest in energy-saving technologies, not specific to greenhouses. And I wanted to create a company. And what I wanted at the beginning with Lindsay, we, we started planning the first greenhouses in people's backyards. These are eight by tens. Or pretty soon we realized that we needed a builder. So Josh Hollop was one of the first employees, friends, partners that helped us build it. And so the expertise grew out of that. And then we decided, well, we need to do more energy calculations. We need to have better arguments when we get to the commercial side. And so from really, I think until 2013, it was the three of us or the four of us. And then between then and now, where we're about over 30 people, we have increased because we needed more expertise in every aspect of engineering and every aspect of architecture. We are not only building utilitarian buildings that work wonderful industry that only use about 10 to maybe 20% of a traditional greenhouse in some high efficiency greenhouses and some applications we can use only 1% of what would be used as a standard. So our energy usage is significantly lower. And then with it comes the engineering of electrical and plumbing and mechanical systems. There's, we grew in the offering that we're providing to clients for magnitude. Now, at the beginning, jobs were a few thousand dollars. Now they are a few million dollars to tens of millions of dollars. And so the team had to grow to be able to do that. But the philosophy still stayed the same. We are not manufacturers, we're designers, and we help our suppliers and partners to develop new products that we can then use optimally in our greenhouses. So how is Sarah's Greenhouse as a company culture on this mission different than other companies in the similar space? Why are you different? How are you different? Vidya, thank you for asking that question. It is one that is very deep and meaningful to me. One of the things that we got challenged with early on was to, the question about how are we fair? When we give something to somebody, you know, it's a powder day, they want to go skiing. Can everybody else go skiing? Can, you know, we want to support somebody who wants to buy a house. Can we help that person buy his house with, in some form? with a bonus, with something. And so the question became very quickly, but yeah, if we do this with one person, we need to do this with, with everybody. And so how do we make decisions? And then very early on, we decided that we are not a company that's primarily about fairness, but that it is a company that is run with love and empathy. Which is not cool these days. Which is, well... Depends on what you think is cool. I think it is cool. I think most of the, of the wonderful people that I work with think it's cool. At the beginning, it was a little, people were a little weird about using the word love in business. That is not or empathy, but 
the beautiful thing is that people trust that this is a place that they're not alone and that they feel loved. And that is such a strong influence in all our lives, right? We, we may do all kinds of crazy things for love. Why should that not be in work? Why are we afraid to raise that level of commitment and enthusiasm? And that's what we really try to do. How do you do that? Because it's not easy, right? Because you have to expose yourself at work. You have to make yourself vulnerable at work to be able to even receive the love. Yep. How do you get that in a corporate culture? We struggle with that, right? And the struggle is that we are completely open, on, for example, of all our finances. Everybody knows where we are. Everybody understands. And there are times where things were very tough. And we were thinking, how are we going to survive? But everybody knew that. Everybody understood that. Personal relationships, clients that somebody has difficulty with. And so we go with that empathy in there and say, we believe that there must be a way that we can find mutual understanding at least. But it is my expectation that to every single customer that I go, I can have a hug. I can have a true hug. I can feel like I'm seeing a friend. That's my expectation with any interaction I have with any client, partner. And if you're open and put that expectation out, people will respond appropriately. It's amazing how many people have changed. I said, with you guys, we have a very special relationship. I was like, yeah, thank you. We too. And that's the only one that we're accepting. We don't accept the others because then something is wrong. So if you want truly sustainability and a mindful business, this is your podcast, that is an essential part of what I think it means to be a mindful business. And empathy and love are not weak. They just say, I'm vulnerable. People respect the vulnerability. I just wanted to add to Mark, to his statement that a lot of us came to series because we believed in the vision and a series was a very small company. And we started in roles that we're not necessarily even in right now. But in the beginning, it was a lot of people with who specifically saw series as a company that was worth working for. What was the part of the vision that drew you in particular? Um, you know, you asked in the beginning, um, where does our food come from? And it reminded me of a story. I worked on a um, regenerative farm as an intern for some months um, in my mid-20s. And we had a dairy and we'd bring kids in to show them how to milk. And the guy who was doing the milking at the time would always ask the kids, where does, where does milk come from? In front of the cow. And one of the kids one day was like, from the supermarket. <laughs> um, and it dawned on me like how disconnected we are from what we put in our bodies and how much work it goes into producing food at every step in the process, from planting the seeds to cultivating the soil to keeping the seeds nurtured, the plants growing, and then harvest time, and then it's processed, it's shipped, sometimes it's made into a, a further product. And we are so unaware of that. And it, there's so many people involved and a lot of logistics and a lot of environmental impact. And so I became very 
interested in the message of bringing the food miles closer, making that awareness more known, the freshness around growing your own food, and then also just food access. So it's one of my passions working for this company, trying to spread the message food sovereignty in particular. And so we're trying to reach communities that are in food deserts or just don't have access or power over their own food supplies. And so providing that back. So I live in Indiana right now and all around me, when I moved here 24 years ago, were cornfields. And it shocked me that I couldn't eat any of that corn because that corn was meant for animal feed. And later, they started making corn for ethanol in the gasoline. But with so much land, none of the food which came to our local supermarket was from these farms nearby. What's interesting when you say that is uh, we've heard from farmers who... uh, don't have access to food. They live on a farm. It's a very strange world we live in where people who are even growing food don't have access because they're selling their corn or whatever crops they're growing to, they have contracts or it's not even being made into food. So they're not eating that food. And then their soil is so depleted, they can't even really manage a garden or do they have the time. And then there's no grocery stores nearby. So it's this very strange system where we have the land, we have the know-how, and yet there's disconnect between the desire or maybe it's the capital behind it. I'm sure there's a lot of reasons, but you know, our goal is to be one player and making a difference and trying to make food growing more accessible. We do a lot of work with educational greenhouses for that reason, because if kids know where their food comes from, if they know how to grow it, they're learning all of these skills that are really important um, for the future of the planet. You touched upon food sovereignty and explain that concept to me. It, I think it's really about empowering communities to take control of their own food supply. How can we do that? Because I want avocados today. It's March 10th and I want my avocados from Mexico today, you know? You know, it's complicated. I think it's a combination. It depends where you live and it depends what your goals are and how much money you have to begin with. But we we have to recognize that food gets shipped in from places not necessarily nearby. And those are that's an awareness that we should probably all have. And we all make those decisions. I mean, if, if you took away coffee, you know, we can't grow coffee anywhere close, but if you tried to take that away, I'm sure you'd have a lot of people up in arms, but just understanding that, you know, it is shipped from far away and it does with that comes a lot of potential for bad practices in a lot of areas, both like ecologically and worker village, what your aims are, how much you're willing to put in, all of these things, you know, there's this interplay that that is important to recognize. But having control over that food supply, if if you are just trying to feed your community, you can grow hearty greens year-round quite easily. And you can grow tomatoes and peppers, depending on what climate control systems you want to implement. You can potentially do them year-round or 
maybe just part of the year. There's lots of options. We just have to open our minds to fruits and vegetables. Maybe we've never tried before and also let go of certain ones that maybe just come from too far away and it's just not in season. Yes. And I don't know if you will use this in this interview. You are from India and the country of origin for Ayurvedic medicine. And I studied it quite a while. My, my wife is an Ayurvedic doctor in part. And so one of those things uh, that Ayurveda really stresses is to eat appropriate to the seasons. And so this is not only a question of sustainability, it's a question of health, that in certain times of the year, you need to eat certain types of food that are more healthy because you need in the wintertime more grounded food. You know, it, it, it changes with the season. And it's just so funny that the nature provides us with exactly those kind of foods at exactly the right kind of a time. We just got dissociated from that because all we're thinking, I'm going to the supermarket where I have everything, which is actually not the healthiest way to live. It's like oranges are grown the most in December when you actually need the vitamin C, for instance. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. Originally, I always thought about food deserts and the less privileged neighborhoods in an urban environment. So talk about food deserts in all contexts and how can greenhouses help? There is a wonderful example of how this can work. There's a place in Denver, Colorado. It's called the Grow House. It's a grow and then H-A-U-S. It is a greenhouse that is operated by a nonprofit in a food desert. It's a mostly Hispanic, but not only neighborhood with no grocery store anywhere. And so everybody can buy right from that facility. And the beautiful thing about that is at the beginning, they thought they could even give every family or many families a personal plot inside the greenhouse. It turned out that that probably was not the most efficient way to feed that community. So they decided to become a little bit more commercial in the way that they grew it, basically have an expert farmer who knows exactly what they're going to do. But all the food that they grew or that they are growing will be sold within that community. And so this is a beautiful example of where this happens. There are other organizations in um, Kansas City. is a gorgeous organization that feeds, uh, it's a nonprofit as well, that is making sure that food is grown locally and distributed for the communities in need. Which, again, this doesn't, food desert does not necessarily mean that the people that live in the food desert are poor. It just means that it's a long way for them to get to the next grocery store. And if they don't have a car, they actually can't get there. And so and you have to use other people to, to get your food. That's what a food desert is. And of course, as Miriam has said, it's in the western side of Colorado. You have all farming communities. Those people have to drive an average two hours to get to the next grocery store. And so they have to take coolers in the summer so that they could put the ice cream into their cars so that the ice cream actually makes it home. And of course, reservations, you know, we can go to Native Americans. There's all kind of repercussions of race, of um, social, socioeconomic status. It touches on so many aspects of life. Food touches us all and food distribution is not equal.
and greenhouses can help with that. And there are many, many nonprofits these days that help build greenhouses in inner cities or in areas where people need the food and can grow it themselves. And I think that's a wonderful market or a wonderful aspect of this is too that in many areas, especially veterans who have been at wars and have PTSD and had difficulties in uh, returning to civil normal civilization have a great healing aspect of serving others by providing food, seeing it grow slowly, and then providing that to their families and community is something that is hugely important for many, many people and a market segment that we love to support and help in any way we can. So what is Sarah's doing to address this problem? We try to work specifically with many nonprofit organizations that try to provide these greenhouses that can grow all year into areas that are specifically targeted to help grow food in food deserts, not only in food deserts, but in areas to, to help the local community. And so that for those kind of projects, there are lovely organizations that work incredibly hard to make that happen. These days, of course, it's difficult to fundraise, but food has become, partly because of COVID, more important and the awareness of food has become more important and the awareness of living healthy so you can withstand and the COVID infection if you ever get one. Food has become a much more important aspect of people's lives. They're also home much more, so they think about growing more. They have their own gardens. They want their own greenhouses. We see all of that. And the beautiful thing is that by having a greenhouse that works all year that you don't have to heat all winter, you can then create a sustainable future where your food does not have to come from that far and you can maybe feed your neighbors. You know, one person can have a greenhouse big enough to feed the neighbors Maybe not all of it, but to add fresh food to their diet. And as you probably know, at least in most places, if you grow a tomato yourself and you harvest it and you eat it, it will taste significantly different than the, use, the one that you're buying in the winter that comes from Mexico. Because in reality, that tomato was picked green. It had to be. So it could be shipped safely, then put into an ethylene chamber to be made red. Now that's a, ethylene is a chemical, but it is something that is used by the plant itself. So it's not itself bad. It's just, it, you can look at this tomato and you see it's kind of red, but it's not really red. That's because it was picked green and made red, but none of the actual nutrients actually ever had time to get into the tomato, right? So the nutritional density of that tomato is not there. And so therefore you, you have a tomato looking thing that you're eating, but it doesn't really do much to you, nor does it taste a lot. So if you were, are able to grow that tomato yourself, it's going to taste significantly different. And you can do this in the middle of the winter, of course. So I wanted to actually ask you, your greenhouses, does the technology that you use, does that alter the taste of the plant 
Oh, no. That's a great discussion. I just told my team that I would like to get out of the leadership issues that I do with right now and to deal with this idea of how to get which projects done on time and focus exactly on that question. I believe, and I have evidence for that, that the way the fruit or the vegetable is grown affects the nutritional density and the taste. And so the amount of light that you, that plant gets makes a difference. For instance, the blueberries in Alaska are as big as grapes, you know, because they yes. have to, because yeah. they have the 24 yeah. hours of sun during summers. And yeah. I have plenty of evidence that that is happening. I work with some universities. One of them is UC Davis in California. We, we're working on tackling exactly that question, how to make our food better, not just to provide people with food, but to give it the best food. And that is my thrill of the next years to come. This is a wonderful journey that I can't wait to get really into. So best in terms of nutrition and taste. Yep. So talking about nutrition, all of us are taught the food pyramid, which has changed a little bit over the last 30 years or so. So in my previous career, I worked as an auditor auditing the food programs in public schools into the Chicago area. And I was fresh from India those days. I'd never really seen much canned food. So I, I had a check mark that they were getting their fruit for the day, but it was a sugary syrup from a can. They were getting the protein from that day with a strip of bacon, maybe, or a hot dog, or a, at best, a greasy pizza. And now there is a little bit more awareness. There are some chefs who have started working with school menus and you know things like that. And I think the next step is what you are doing, hoping that growing practices will optimize nutrition and taste. There are some amazing organizations that do incredible work. One of those here in Boulder is the Chef Anne Foundation. She is a famous uh, chef that was one of those TV chefs and then she became the chef for our local school district. They, she works together with the Whole Kids Foundation. They're coming originally from the Whole Foods side, but they're really separate from them. Absolutely incredible work to try to increase the food quality for our kids. And with the food quality comes this idea that kids really need to experience what fresh food from the plant tastes like so that they actually going to eat it. As long as the carrot comes from the grocery store, it's the same as a piece of sugary something else, right? But if you see it and you grow it, then there is a transformation of what kids feel and what they're going to eat. And I've seen that on my own kids because we grew our own food in the yard and they went to the school. In the school, there's a great program that had raised beds outside so they could grow their own food in elementary school. It changed my son and my daughter, really, both. They just changed what they ate. And that's exactly what we want to see. So with the use of greenhouses, we could also reduce the amount of water used and pesticide use. So we can essentially grow organic crops. With greenhouses, we can kind of control the environment and use less pesticides, less fertilizers, and even less water. That is correct. There's a wonderful organization led by Dan Kittrich. Um, they're doing nutrient, uh, bio-nutrient studies. 
they have found that actually how somebody grows can change the nutritional content of one vegetable to another one, one carrot to another carrot, by one to a hundred. And it is not a question of organic or not organic. Organic or not organic affects how many pesticides are on a specific plant. And you're right. If they're in a greenhouse and they're not sprayed, then they have much fewer. And of course, if they're outside, that's true too. But the method of growing and the knowledge of the farmer will determine the nutrient density of that food. But that is significantly helped if you can control the environment and optimize the environment to the plant. Separate to all of that, as just as you noted, the amount of water used in a greenhouse is probably is less than about one-tenth of the amount of water that you would use outside. And that's pretty obvious in the greenhouse. The only water really that you're using is the water that the plant sucks up to, to grow. And then it gives it off at the leaves, and then that is water usage. But in the soil, you have water, and now you, that water will evaporate right from the soil into the atmosphere. Most of the water is actually wasted, right? You're just watering the atmosphere, and that's not really helpful in many areas. So yes, greenhouses can help with the water usage, which in many parts of the country is a huge issue. Here out in the West, it's a big, big issue, more so than on the East Coast. In other countries, Australia, you know, the, they have huge water issues, and um, it's wonderful to have the opportunity to grow food with minimal water usage. Your greenhouses come in various sizes. Uh, you can have one for your backyard. Um, you can have one for commercial farmers. Give me an average price. Like, say I wanted a small greenhouse in my backyard to grow enough for my family and me. Can it be set up? We get a lot of snow. Can it be set up where there is a lot of snow? And how effective is it? to actually give me produce year-round? So I think the best way to do this would be to say, we help people by providing them just a plan. Say, so here's a plan for, I don't quite know the number, is maybe $700 or something. It has all the lists of all the parts that you need. And you can go to the local hardware store, you buy all the things and you build it yourself. If you want to make that a highly efficient year-round greenhouse in a northern climate, that withstands any snow or wind, uh, many places you have 100 mile per hour wind and more, you're looking at material costs that are probably in the range of somewhere between, in the range of $60 a square foot. And that's not cheap, but those are all new materials. If you are in a town like Boulder and many others, but there's, there's reclaim centers where you can use used materials, you can get this for a fraction of that price. Separate to that, um, when, you become, when that greenhouse becomes bigger, the material costs go maybe down to $30 a square foot. And then you need to add the construction costs that either be done by a professional installer or many of our clients just build them themselves. They need a little bit of technical experience. So it's, it, it does take some technical understanding, but it is possible to do that. And so then you can keep your cost minimal. It is a question of the size and, and your technical ability. But I want to say 
If you have it completely done by somebody else, on the smaller scales, probably in the range of 100 and a little few more dollars a square foot. If you want to do that really well insulated, all those aspects that are specific to what we do. Can you buy a $500 greenhouse from Home Depot? Yes, you can. And that works too. They are usually meant to be season extenders. So they're just getting you through the last frost in the spring and the first frost in the fall. So you get two weeks on either end, and that's great. That's definitely worth doing if that's what you want. If you want to grow all the way through the winter, it would be enormously expensive to heat such a leaky greenhouse all year. That just nobody would do that. If you take one of those cheaper greenhouses, not insulated, you spend hundreds to thousands of dollars in heating cost. And so within a few years, it's just really not worth buying that. So you may as well buy the more insulated one. How have you fixed the problem? You had mentioned something earlier about food deserts and how we tackle that problem. And I see a crossroads between that, that question and this question about, you know, can you buy a greenhouse and how much does it cost? And I just want to be really clear that a series greenhouse as it is right now is not cheap. But caveat, what we've created is the best and it's using the best materials and it's intended to grow year round and it's intended to have very little operational costs. So it's our goal that if you build something to last, the payoff will be worth it versus more of this planned obsolescence model that you see a lot where companies are just trying to sell a product. They don't really care if it succeeds because the idea is that you'll buy a new one in a few years or replace some materials. And that's not our goal. Our goal is really to build a product that will stick with people, that they won't have to replace things that will work effectively. And then I just wanted to add on top of that, the idea or the goal of getting to communities that don't, maybe don't have the money or anyone really who, who might not be able to afford an upfront cost of a greenhouse, that is something that we are aware of. And it is something that, you know, we have innovators at Series Mark being one of them. And the goal is to constantly look at new products and new materials and new engineering to make the whole system work more effectively. Talk about the different components which go into that. So we, if I just dissect the traditional one, they have leaky structures, too much heat buildup. They have to be heated again at night when they are cold. So let's break these up into the three different problems which traditional greenhouses have and how you series has tackled it. I want to answer that by saying there is a wide variety of needs out there and there is a wide variety of areas in the U.S. where you have very different needs. So the, the solution in Florida is not the same as it is in Minnesota, obviously. And so we... The beautiful thing that we have as a company, we have the engineers and the architects to customize the solutions based on the needs that somebody has. Those needs include what kind of plants do you want to grow? A, a tomato cannot really get to be much below 55 degrees, otherwise the tomato will really struggle. Whereas salad greens don't need to go much about 65 
right? So it's a question of where to find the right balance. And it, that's a, it's a wonderful, tricky, tricky thing to do. The basic, most basic way that we help control the climates, and that's something that we use really in most of our greenhouses on the agricultural s- space, meaning in the veggie space. There, those greenhouses will have what we call a ground-to-air heat transfer system, which means we're taking the heat from the top of the greenhouse in the daytime when the sun is shining, put it into the soil, heat the soil, cool the air, and cool the greenhouse air in the daytime. How do you do that? Is that a heat pump? or No, it is not. It's actually not a heat pump. It is just a um, fan that sucks the air from the top of the greenhouse and blows it in a variety of pipes that are lying in the ground. It's an array, array, array of pipes, small pipes, only four inches in diameter, that are all under the greenhouse that the air flows through and that heat is absorbed by the soil and then cools the air so when it comes out, it's actually at the soil temperature. So it's almost like radiant fluoride heating. That's exactly what it is. In the nighttime, that becomes radiant floor heating. Fantastic. Right? In the nighttime, you do the same thing. You take the air that's now cold because it's cold outside. You take that cold air, you send it to the same soil. All the heat is going to be reabsorbed into the air, and then you're heating it at night. That system works extremely well when your structure is energetically very stable, meaning well insulated, then this system will work a lot. When the greenhouse is leaky and it's not very well built, then this system doesn't quite work as well. It still will work, but not as well. And so that's one of the cheap ways to do that. Another way that we can use this is it's called a phase change material. We become very technical here. It's a material that changes from solid to liquid. And it's a salt-based, often, material that can go into a little bit of a quarter-inch thick material that you can mount on the walls with an enormously high heat storage capacity. So in the daytime, it gets warm, it absorbs all the heat, the wall stays cold, and then cool at, let's say, let's say 60 degrees. Yes. So in the daytime, the greenhouse gets much warmer, all the heat is going to be absorbed in the wall, And then at nighttime, the temperature goes down, the wall stays at 60 degrees and gives off all that heat. So it's a completely passive way to make sure that you store all that heat. So this is some sort of uh, insulation or some sort of a product that you place on the walls which don't have the glass. Yep, that's right. And so that is an awesome, those are just two of many ways of how you can make sure you can get across this issue between day and nighttime day abundance of energy, night times lack of energy. And so you're just moving it from the abundance to the lack. So the second solution is kind of fascinating because you could set it up in a place where you don't have electricity, right? So, Yep, that's correct. And there are many other ways that you can increase the efficiency. You can put windows low into the greenhouse and windows up high so you get a natural chimney effect. So it sucks naturally cold air in through the bottom vents and expels them through the top. There are many different ways of how you can do smart design in a greenhouse that will help reduce the energy use. Many of these things, by the way, 
are not really that new. In the first energy crisis in 1973, a lot of people in this country, all around the world, built greenhouses. They built enormously good greenhouses at the time. And then somehow we got into energy abundance and everybody forgot about them. So a part of what we did is we went back to, well, what did they do in the 70s and what worked then? And now we're just doing it on a commercial scale, which really hadn't been done before. So even before the 70s, did you look into how the indigenous people lived, how they were so much more connected to the land, the Native Americans or the... Yes. Yeah, the, this this ground to air heat transfer idea um, is not that new. And, and it was brought to me by a Chinese acupuncturist um, in town. His name is Marco Lam, Dr. Marco Lam. And so he, he brought it up to me and said, you know, we in China have been doing this for 2,000 years. You know, this is, this is really not that new. Well, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have electricity, but yes. And of course, when you uh, go to the western side of Colorado, you can see those wonderful glyph dwellings with the villages where 100 people live together. And they did really the same. They had exactly the same idea for venting each of those rooms, they were on top of each other. They had, th those are old principles that we have optimized based on modern modeling software where you can do things that are, you know, amazing um, that they didn't have at the time. So they weren't as efficient at the time, but they worked. And so these are all things that were just in part copying what, what has been done thousands of years ago. So you are modeled as a for-profit, but profit is not the primary motive for Ceres, right? That is correct. And I'm so glad you, you're mentioning that. We have a few things that, that matter. One of them is we are trying to determine the amount of CO2 saved or not ex you know, expelled. So we, a matrix that we can look at success is to say how much less CO2 are we putting into the environment? That's a matrix that is more important to me than how much money we're making. And that's true for the whole company. Miriam is working on putting that onto the website and, and, and doing more research of, of in the past of how that all adds up and what our actual difference is. But the part that I really care about, you know, now I'm 60, I just had my 60th birthday about, five days ago and my strong belief is you know i can create a really cool company and that's great my influence will be very very small it's not what i can do it's all the people that i can inspire to do this themselves right and that's not just my clients that want to have nice greenhouses i i care deeply about the Miriams that are on this call. They are the ones that we will need to rely on to take us to the next level. If we want to make the world a better place for our kids, specifically my kids, but everybody's kids, right? I am not here to leave my kids a lot of money. That's not the idea. What I want is I want to, us to stop to borrow from them and actually start putting environmental, sustainable capital in their accounts. And so the best way that we can, that I figured we can do this is by 
learning as much as we can, teaching as much as we can, and encourage the young generations to change the world and to give them the confidence that they can do that and give them the resources that they can do that. Because only then have we, do we really have a larger impact. This company series is not really relevant in the big scheme of things. It is each of the people that we can touch that will make us the better future that we need. On that very inspiring note, thank you so much, Mark and Miriam, for coming on Mindful Businesses. That was a pleasure. Thank you. That was really quite lovely. If you're a creator of a mindful brand or would like to recommend a mindful brand, send us a message at info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe and listen to us on your favorite podcast listening app. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with one friend. Remember to rate and review us on Apple or Google Podcasts. This is Vidya Ayer for Mindful Businesses.